2 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron, before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. He said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all round from the Milo inwards. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobah, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphilet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up in search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go round to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Giza. David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from 
Bala Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hands to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David, David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of, the God, of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when, the, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six days, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen effort. So, David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in space inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offering before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisin to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. 
uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his house to appoint me as prince of Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Well, as we look at 2 Samuel over the coming weeks, we are looking at the contours of God's king, God's king who will accomplish his salvation. And in these chapters, in chapter 5 and 6, we reach the high point, if you like, of this portrait of God's king and his salvation. I was listening to a podcast this week and someone was describing just how much Jesus had saved them from. And in a gathering like this this morning, well, what a wonderful time we would have were we to spend time hearing from one another of our testimony about the work of salvation the Lord has accomplished among us. But it's possible that at times, whilst we are conscious of the wonderful things that Jesus has done, which are essential to God's salvation plan, we can just lose sight of what you might call the pinnacle, like the peak of a mountain, but it's just hidden in the clouds. And this morning we're going to be looking at that peak in bright sunshine. And it's a magnificent vista, a vista of reconciliation with God, our creator, to enjoy rest under his good rule, accomplished through his exalted king. By way of a brief recap, the context of 1 and 2 Samuel is the end of the book of Judges. There's a little box on your handouts that gives you a few verses there. We find at the end of the book of Judges that Israel is in spiritual darkness and human wickedness abounds. And so the final verse of the book explains why. Judges 21:25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel was a great problem. Not only was there no physical king, but here was a people estranged from the Lord who was their king. Where humanity rejects the rule of God. Well, instead, human pride rules. And that is always a mess. But right back in chapter uh, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we're told of the Lord's coming salvation. A solution. Hannah sings a song. And the final words, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And in these chapters this morning, we see a picture of that accomplished. The king exalted. And through him, God gives us what we most need and what we least deserve. Put simply, what is the pinnacle of salvation? It's God himself. And so we have two points this morning. First, David is exalted because he knows the Lord is king. And second, because David knows the Lord is king, well, he restores the reign of the Lord to his people. David is exalted because he knows the Lord is king. So in chapters 2 to 4, we have just seen the Lord sovereignly raise David up to be king over all Israel. 
And here in chapter 5, David completes the conquest of the land that the Lord had promised as he goes up to Jerusalem to defeat the Jebusites and drive them out. Now this mission, it's not an ego trip of a new king. It's about completing the Lord's command. The Jebusites are inhabitants of the land. They were one of the peoples that under God's judgment would be driven out in response to their sin and his, and his people installed. But to conquer Jerusalem was a tough mission. The Jebusites are strong. It's a great stronghold. In fact, they're so confident that they mock David. It's like that scene, if you've seen it in Monty Python's Holy Grail, mocking from the, fort, uh, the fortress walls. The blind and the lame will ward you off, is their confident taunt. They're gloating. Think of the boxer who boasts, even my granny could knock you out. It's that kind of scene, verse 6. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Except David proves to be the prize fighter. And in a mission impossible style, he infiltrates Jerusalem and he defeats the Jebusites. Verse 7, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. It's worth just being clear that when David speaks of hating the blind and the lame, it's very important to see this is not a matter of him holding any prejudice against disabled people. Indeed, when the Lord Jesus entered the temple a thousand years later, fulfilling what David is foreshadowing, he welcomed the blind and the lame and he healed them. Now, verse 7 and 8 are ironic. It's David turning that Jebusite taunt right back on them. As if to say, well, if you're sending granny to fight, we're coming for granny and we're coming for you. And so it seems this saying develops, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Just to keep emphasizing, David was victorious and those who taunt God's king won't be in his kingdom. And so David enters Jerusalem and then the construction firms roll in. And great building works happen. They built a city all around from the Milo inwards. And it's a picture, a symbol of the establishment of David's throne. And David understands crucially that it's the Lord who's done it. The author tells us that in verse 10. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then in verse 12, the author tells us David knew it. Verse 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And so here is David, the Lord's anointed, exalted in Zion. Remember those words we said from Psalm 2 earlier, the Lord says, as for me, I will set my king in Zion, my holy hill. And Psalm 2 goes on to tell us that God's king will defeat God's enemies the nations who rage against the Lord and his anointed. And that's what we see in the very next scene. The Philistines come again and they are defeated. It's a climactic picture. It's 1 Samuel 2 verse 10, Hannah's song, finally accomplished. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But the scene gets even better because the king the Lord has anointed 
proves to be the king who knows that the Lord is the true king. And that's vital. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Samuel explained that when Israel first asked for a king, the big problem was that they wanted a king who would fight for them against the nations when they already had the Lord their God as their king. And when they asked for this, he just defeated the Philistines single-handedly without an Israelite presence. And so Samuel explains that the king they need, the one the Lord will exalt, will be one, the one who knows that the Lord himself is king and submits to him. And we see that David understands this. Verse 10, again, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The God of hosts. Well, hosts means armies. This is the God who fights for his people. And then in these two remarkable battles against the Philistines, well, it's clear David knows the Lord is the one who fights for Israel. Verse 19, when the Philistines have come out, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I'll certainly give the Philistines into your hand. David looks to the Lord. And then again in verse 22, they've come again into the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go round to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. David knows the Lord is king and he must fight. He inquires to him. And both times he knows the Lord has won the victory. Verse 20, David came to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And then I just love verse 24. The Lord says to David, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Can you imagine that scene? In those stormy days after Christmas, quite often I could hear the wind rushing through the trees. If you're out on the corner over there by St. Andrews or behind us here on a windy day, you'll, you'll hear it whistling through the buildings and you'll see the evidence of city workers getting blown about. Well, imagine hearing the sound of a vast army marching across the tops of the trees and looking up and knowing, there goes the Lord the God of hosts, out to battle before us to strike down the enemy. It's exactly what we've been waiting for. And it's exactly what we've been waiting for because it's a scene of such unity between the Lord and his anointed. The Lord exalts his king and the king knows the Lord is king. And his king knows that it's all for the sake of of God's great salvation plan. Just look again at verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. For the sake of his people Israel. Those last few words tell us that the Lord has done this so that through David, he will keep his covenant promises and accomplish his salvation for his people. And so this wonderful scene of exaltation and climax and unity between God and his king, well, chapter 6 is actually then exactly what we expect to happen. Because when the Lord exalts his king, his king's priority is to restore the reign of the Lord 
to his people. And so this is our second point. David is exalted because he knows the Lord as king. And because David knows the Lord as king, he restores the reign of God to his people. Now there is a lot going on in chapter 6. But as we stand back, the big development is that David brings the ark of God up to Jerusalem. The ark was a wooden box, about 130 centimetres long, 80 centimetres wide and 80 centimetres high. And it was covered in gold. On top of it were two golden cherubim. And they were either side of a covering called the mercy seat. And inside it were the tablets of stone on which the Lord gave his law to Moses. And so this ark, well, it symbolized God's covenant with his people, his promises to gather a people whom he blessed. And it symbolized his presence with his people. In Exodus, we're told that the Lord would speak to Moses from the mercy seat. And it symbolized his rule over his people as their king. Listen to how it's described in verse six, uh, six, chapter 6, verse 2. David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. You see, the ark was like the footstool of the throne of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so the ark's arrival in Jerusalem is like the re-enthronement of God as king over his people. Everything that was lost when Adam rebelled in the Garden of Eden, that blessing of the good rule of God restored. Everything gone at the end of Judges, where people did what was right in their own eyes and rejected the freedom that came from life under God's good reign. What we need in a pockmarked world with the damage that proud humanity's rebellion against our maker causes. Well, what we need is reconciliation with God, a restoration of his rule. And David understands this. And so he is determined to reestablish the Lord as king over Israel. But as David brings up the ark, he learns a lesson that shows us how God's king must accomplish this. Let's pick up the story And chapter 6, verse 1 again. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now look at verse 5 as we see the, the scene. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and symbols. 30,000 men is a huge security force. And with them are musicians and singers and all the house of Israel celebrating. Think of the platinum jubilee celebrations, but this is the whole nation on the streets. But then verse 6 lands like a great smash of crockery in the middle of a great party. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. As we hear those words, we may well find them pretty shocking. Uzzah just seems to want to stop the ark falling off the cart. Why does he deserve this? 
And I wonder if we sympathize with David, verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David is angry. The whole scene is upsetting and confusing. But notice while the anger of the Lord in verse 7 was against Uzzah. David's anger is not described as against the Lord, but rather because of what the Lord has done. The writer John Woodhouse uh, picks up on this and says, The difference matters. David hated what had happened, but this did not mean he hated the Lord. But David does not know what to do. He doesn't know what's going on. And so he leaves the ark with Obed-Edom the Gittite. And we might be asking, well, why did this happen? And I wonder if actually this event is a valuable reminder for us as the reader, in all the excitement of the ark's ascent to Jerusalem, of just how huge a deal it is to be reconciled to God. Because he's holy, and he is pure, and he must be approached rightly. In these verses in chapter 6 here, there are all kinds of connections and parallels with the verses back in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 7 when we last saw the ark and it was captured by the Philistines. Back then, 30,000 men of Israel died in battle as the ark was captured and here 30,000 men of Israel guarded. Back then, the Lord defeated the, Israel, the Philistines and he's just done the same in chapter 5. And when the Philistines decided to send the ark back to Israel after the Lord had defeated them, well, they strapped it to a new cart and sent it off pulled by some cows. And then we read chapter 6, verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. See, number chapter 4, the Lord has given clear instructions on how to transport the ark. And yet here, David is treating it just like the pagan Philistines did. The scene is a bit like going to watch the trooping of the colour and finding that King Charles is being transported down the mall, sitting on a bale on Farmer Giles' trailer, being pulled by an old Massey Ferguson. There might be a vast marching band in front and the household guard row upon row behind, but the king's not being honoured. There's a way these things should be done. And how much more with God? We cannot just treat God any way we want. Well, perhaps we're thinking that's obvious. But I wonder whether as we face the pressure to conform to what society thinks, Well, we might find it tempting just to try and flex God's word a bit and run with the culture and presume that as long as we're sincere, it doesn't really matter. Or it might be that we're here this morning and we like the idea of knowing God, but we've got our own view on how it should happen. And we assume that because we're sincere, he'll be fine with it. But here we see, although David is sincere, he does it wrong. David's seen a great victory as the Lord breaks out against the Philistines, Baal Perazim. And yet here the Lord breaks out against one of his own people, Perez Uzzah. And it's a name given to warn. <clears throat> we must approach God rightly. But as we hear this then, it might be that our 21st century ears think, 
well, surely this sounds a bit uptight. Why can't God relax a bit, be a bit more flexible? But when we think about it for a moment more, we realize this is hugely reassuring because it shows us God is not arbitrary. He is pure and just and he's unchanging. I heard this week about a survey conducted last year that looked at factors impacting the decision at parole hearings, whether to grant parole or not. And it found that a person was more likely to be granted parole if the hearing was at the start of the day at nine o'clock in the morning than if it was the last one before lunch. When it comes to human beings, simply hunger and fatigue will have a bearing on justice. Regularly, we observe those things we call trials by Twitter or judgments by petition. In this last week, we've seen a TV dramatization have a genuine bearing, it seems, on our appetite for justice as we consider the post office scandals. Where right and wrong becomes relative, where justice seems arbitrary, actually, we don't feel more secure because we don't know where we stand. We don't actually want a flexible God. A pure and a just and an unchanging God is really good news. And so David's attitude and his question in verse 9, well, they really are right. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. He recognized who the Lord is. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? God is holy. We must approach him rightly. But he is also good. And he wants us to know him. And as we watch David in the rest of this chapter, well, God shows us through David how we can be reconciled to him. And it is something that will never change. And so verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. The scene at Obed-Edom's house is like a taster of the pinnacle of salvation that David will accomplish. In the Garden of Eden, man and woman dwelt in the presence of God in a picture of perfect rest. At the very end of the Bible story in Revelation chapter 21, well, it's described, the Lord's salvation is described as God dwelling with his people the dwelling place of man is with God the goal of salvation is that we know the Lord and dwell with him forever under the blessing of his kingly rule and David sees this and like Jesus in the gospels he sets his face to Jerusalem determined and the narrative that follows is totally focused on David and what he does how can God how can a holy God give us himself Well, we see in these verses, it is through the sacrifice of his king who despises the shame. We'll pick up from the second half of verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. In this new procession, the right people are carrying the ark in the right way. And David leads the way. 
And when they've walked six steps, David personally makes a sacrifice to the Lord. There are no priests involved, but David himself is wearing an ephod, which is a priestly garment. Here is the king priest who mediates between the Lord and his people. It's a picture of the Christ who, by his sacrifice, reconciles men and women to God. The Apostle Peter writes, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so determined is God's king that his people might know the Lord's good rule, well, he will despise the shame. As David brought up the ark, he danced with all his might. He leapt, he rejoiced, he celebrated. And scorn would not stop him. When Michal, David's wife, saw him dancing, well, we see there in verse 16, she despised him in her heart. And in verse 20, she marches out to meet him. And with what must be cutting sarcasm, she says, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. In these verses, Michal, David's wife, is actually referred to only as the daughter of Saul, a representative of human pride, which looks down on a weak, suffering king. And wonderfully, God's king despises the shame and determines to accomplish his salvation. The author to the Hebrews calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we stand back and we look at the mountain peak, the picture of this pinnacle of salvation. As we gaze on this scene this morning, well, it means that if we put our trust in Jesus and his sacrificial death at the cross, we've been reconciled to God. And we have what we most need. We have him. It means this morning that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God and we can approach our Father's throne with confidence and rest under his loving rule. It means this morning that we have wonderful hope because these chapters are a picture of the final scene in the new creation where the dwelling place of God is with man and he himself will be with them as their God. It means this morning that we have good news for our world, oppressed by sin, because there is a way back. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And these words this morning spur us on to pledge allegiance to Jesus, even when we're despised for following him. Michal despised God's king, and we see By the end of verse 13, it confirms the end of Saul's line. Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Human pride will fall, but the Lord and his king will reign forever. And we can dwell with him. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your exalted King Jesus, who has accomplished your great salvation. Thank you for bringing us, undeserving sinners, to yourself, to know you and your good and loving rule now and forevermore. 
Please keep our eyes fixed on this glorious pinnacle. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.